Hello, everybody. This is Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus with my pal David Silver. David, how are you doing today? I'm uh, all right. Thank you very much for asking. Well, and I like the fact that you told the truth. You didn't. You didn't fudge it because if you were really happy, you would have been way more exuberant, right? Yes. <laughs> 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 All right, maybe we shouldn't tell the truth. All right, never mind. Um, no, no, no. It's, yeah. I think it's good because you know uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today is 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 that uh, is that Mark Epstein article you found and about um, not pretending you're a hundred percent all the time because it causes tremendous tension and disappointment. And uh, so sometimes when somebody says how you're doing, you have to say I'm all right. You know, most people well, when they say, I'm wonderful. Most people, when people when they say, "How yeah. are you?" Yeah. they 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 don't they're not caring. They don't care how you are. It's just a a pleasantry, right? How many people would say, "How are you?" And then if the person starts to say, "Well, Jesus, I got to tell you, you know, today was a terrible thing," <laughs> you know, and they immediately recoil and wish they never asked that question. Right. Right. So, um, okay, starting out here. Uh, with some recommendations. I, I want to hit the floor right away with some Amazon recommendations. Again, everybody, please continue on the Amazon trail. Uh, get that thing bookmarked so whatever you buy through there, we get some support uh, for Mind Rolling and MindPod Network. Uh, Trevor Hall has a new record out called Kala, K-A-L-A. And uh, there's one song there uh, that I was just telling David about because he hadn't heard it. It just came out last week. Um, something about the healing. I can't remember the whole title of the song. Obviously, I'm not that prepared. Sorry, Trevor. But uh, it is got some uh, beautiful songs. Really does, Dave. I mean, I, and uh, so right. I encourage everybody else check out Trevor Hall, and the album is called Kala. And uh, and let me go forward since I've got the floor here with recommendations. I got some fall book previews, and the one that I want to get is Chrissy Hine. Dave has a book called Reckless: My Life as a Pretender. She chronicles her entire life from growing up in Ohio to hanging out in the '70s British punk scene to the wild first few years of the Pretenders. Did you know her back in the British when she was no. there? No, I didn't. I just was a fan, you know, loved her music. She, really. Live. I don't know if anybody, I mean, obviously she's a little older now, but she was phenomenal live. I mean, and she was just a really great example for... Um, just a heroic feminine figure. I mean, she took no shit from anybody. I mean, she, and yet she was a really sexy woman. I mean, she, she is, she's amazing. So Chrissy Hine, uh, my life is a, a pretender. And here, your friend here has a new, uh, has a book coming out called M train, Patty Smith. My friend. <laughs> yeah. David's met Patty I before. I, I don't so. really know Patty. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> but I've been in her presence many times. Yes, I understand. Uh, 
with uh, overview while just kids focused on one era of her life. She this is her second book. This book jumps around in time from the death of her husband Fred Sonic Smith to a meeting of an Arctic Explorer Society in Berlin. That sounds pretty interesting. So those are two uh, seminal figures in rock and roll um, women. Uh, her first book was with about her relationship with um, oh god. What's happened to us? I've forgotten his name. I know what's happened to us. Okay. No, no, that, apart from that. Oh. No, I mean, the great photographer who was very, very, very controversial at the time, who was her best friend, and they lived together. Um, we'll think of it. But, um, you know, he was the one that was really put down by the Republic. Um, oh. Right wing said that he was a pervert. Oh, because he was um, gay? Not just gay, but some of the photographs he took and and so on. But uh, anyway, just to Malaport, Malap, Malas, Robert. Uh, yeah, oh, God, there are people out there going. I'm stop. I'm not listening to this anymore. Uh, we'll we'll get it. But um, you know these things. I forget things when I haven't spoken about them for a long time, and I haven't really thought about him or her for a while. But anyway, the book was really superb. Mm, yeah. um, so if it's anything like the first book, it's going to be great. Oh, there you go. Um, and there's a, a, a book uh, also from John Fogarty, a favorite son. Fortunate son is called My Life, My Music. I don't like him personally, so I'm just telling you. There may be people out there that like John. I never like Creedence Clearwater at all. And uh, so it's uh, you shouldn't, if you haven't got something good to say, you shouldn't say anything at all. I'm thinking my mother right now. All right, Dave. Well, just uh, for those Creedence fans out there, I just love them. And still oh. do. Oh, okay. He himself Good, was a controversial God. character, you know. I mean, kind of a, yeah. an argumentative and difficult person. And sued. You know, he wasn't allowed to use much of his own music for a long time, and uh, credence was not his. Just in the same way that Roger Waters lost Pink Floyd and all of this, yeah. which is to most people out there who are really trying to um, pay the rent, it, it has a, a ring of hideous sort of. Um, self-absorption about it when rock stars who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars are really upset. I'm not sure John Fogarty ever was. I know Roger is. Well, uh, so. this said, when Fogarty's Creedence bandmates demanded to help write songs in the early 70s, it was the beginning of the end for the group. Uh, the worst thing that ever happened to my band was the Beatles because the guys in my band thought that they could be the Beatles. These guys had no clue as to what was necessary, a vision. That's just the truth. That's a little bit about why I'm, I wasn't that fond of him, but he well, did. He did Beatles, write some. Great had to things. be the Beatles. I mean, what are people nuts? Yeah, right. you know, it's like people compare the Beach Boys, who I love enormously, and I do recommend that movie so much to people. Love and Mercy. Yeah, great, sensitive film. But people say, well, you know, they were they were as great as the Beatles, or they weren't as good. They are American Beatles. They were themselves, and you can't. You know, people's karma is exquisite. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, people say, oh, well, when Bob Marley died, nobody was Bob Marley. Well, right. They were somebody else. And we're all given that gift of our individuality within the, uh, the larger soul. Our roles are uh, exquisite. Yeah. And, uh, what you do know. you got, Dave? Oh, um, well, uh, nothing quite so um, inspired as yours. In, in minor he sort of. Yeah, but mine are like $20, $25 books. Do you have something like a new frigid refrigerator or something? I do. Um, but first, as a book, I really want to recommend a book to people because I love this book. It's called The Strange Life of Ivan Osokin. 
Hmm. The Strange Life of Ivan Osokin by Peter Ospensky. And I first read this book when I was a very young person, and it blew me away. And then I read it again about five or six years ago, and it blew me away again because I'd forgotten. Can't say anything about the book because the whole thing is based on a mystery that even one word about it could spoil. But I really recommend it. It's very, very inexpensive. It's a short book. Uh, and if you're on the Uspensky Road, check out In Search of the Miraculous also, hmm. which is a lovely book. But try and find The Strange Life of Ivan Osokin on, on Amazon. You'll like it. My big article um, for money in terms of expenses that you've mentioned before, but I just I have one, and I realized I didn't. It's the UE Boom uh, wireless Bluetooth speaker, which is marvelous. I mean, I just can't say enough about it. It's uh, it's about the size of a, a a sort of a large beer can. You know, you know those kind of beer cans that are a bit bigger than the smaller mm, ones. Yeah. It's the size of that. It is it, the quality is. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. It's magic. You can't believe it. And it lasts a long time. It also turns itself off when you're not using it, so it doesn't waste its battery. And it's um, it's you know, it's an Amazon feature. UE Boom. And, didn't uh, I, did I did I recommend that? I think you did, Rago. And I, I at the time I didn't know my, what mine was called, but um, it's it's an absolutely amazing thing. And you use your iPhone if you want, and uh, the iPhone doesn't even have to be in the same room to connect with this thing. And the the bass and treble are both incredible. And for listening to everything from you know Hendrix to Krishna Das, it really is amazing. <laughs> and you know seriously, I I love it. Anyway, another thing too. I want to recommend something to eat. Uh, it's called Rawlicious Indian Spice Twisted Kale Chips. Jesus. Rawlicious. Rawlicious. Indian Spice Twist Kale Chips. I'm a kale guy. Oh, and really? these are just fabulous. And you can get them on, on, you can just chew them. And it's a lot better than, you know, most of the things that people just snack on. This is a great thing. So I recommend them to you. Can't, maybe they could be a sponsor, Dave. Yeah, Rawlicious. Yeah, Rawlicious. Okay, we'll get yeah, in touch right, with right, right. So oh. those are my... All I have right. other, Wonderful. But, you know, this is enough. Yeah. Yes, uh, and so th thanks for continuing to support uh, that whole thing through Amazon. That That is uh, well appreciated. And... After we uh, mentioned that wouldn't it be great as another way to support the podcast or MPN, MindPod Network, wouldn't it be great if, if you just gave a small, and we're going to recommend today the, the number, $9, because it's 108 is the sacred number, so 9 is, is a particle of that. And uh, yeah, $9, if, if, if people out there could say, okay, $9 a month, do a monthly thing, that uh, would be fabulous. And many people have started to do it. So it's many, many, not many, 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 but some. And But there is uh, definitely a little bit of a wave, and that's going to help uh, as well. Um, we uh, have introduced, by the way, we should mention to everybody, on MindPod Network, we have just introduced uh, a new podcaster, somebody who is very close to David and I, and uh, been a friend for a long, long time, and we were in the music business with him, and uh, he has started a podcast called Rock and Rolls, R-O-L-E-S, 
and it's Danny Goldberg. And Danny's got the first one out with Paul Krasner, who is a uh, an icon from uh, over the decades of someone who was an important person. Uh, he had a magazine called The Realist uh, from the late 60s on. And it is fascinating and full of really uh, amazing, amazing stories. And uh, Danny really is uh, pulling the best out of these people. And he's going to continue. And he has uh, just a, a whole coterie of really interesting people. So check out Danny Goldberg on MindPod Network, Dave. Would you check him out? Yeah, I mean, I've you know, I've been talking to him for 44 years. So oh. I heard quite a bit of it. Oh, you already heard it. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, <laughs> been no, there, no, done that. That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, no, it's just that, you know, I, I'm, I'm familiar with his, his, his life. But, you know, you always learn new things about people when they do it in a different form. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. And we've talked to him a couple of times on mind rolling. And yeah, Danny has the best take on. on David and I talk about the us and them stuff. We talk about the polarization in society that's going on in politics and otherwise. And he's got just a, a tremendously balanced take on that, which I'm sure is coming out in these podcasts as well. Um, Dave, uh, the other thing, uh, we found this poem, everybody. And, and I said, Dave, you got to read this poem. It's from by Tom Waits about Rit, uh, Keith Richards, who Keith has a new album coming out, too, by the way, everybody. The first album in 23 years, new album, solo album from him. Uh, that's something else. Would you yeah. Read? His two solo albums from 93 uh, were just incredible. Um, you know, people tend to think he's just the guitar player in the Stones, and they always, you know, stereotype him as being an old drug addict. And Well, he hasn't taken heroin for 31 years, which he made clear in his book. And... Um, you know, he's very clear and lucid about his life. But anyway, we're looking forward to this new album, which is out in a couple of weeks, I think, or less. And um, Raghu uh, pointed out in Rolling Stone there was a, a poem about him by Tom Waits, right? Yeah. And um, so what, should we read it? I mean, or Yeah, should no, we read it. It's not that long. I think it's, it's a fantastic it's, poem. It's, it's, it's a little long. Little so if you're there and you want to hear this poem, um, sit back. Or if you're driving, just keep your eyes on the road and listen. And um, you want me to read it? <laughs> What's the deal? You don't want to read it? <laughs> no, I'll read it. I'll read it. It's just I, I have to hold it and kind of not drop it. Okay, here it is. It's on a piece of paper that's a bit messed up. So I just want to. Make sure it doesn't drop. All right. Um, it's called Keith Richards. He can run faster than a fax machine. His urine is blue. He smells like a campfire. He was once slapped by the queen. He's walked the equivalent of three times around the earth. Like Keith, the Fangari's rebelly cut. What is that? I didn't remember. I'll read that again. Like Keith, the Fangaris rebelly caterpillar strums his bottom like a guitar and the chord attracts the female. <laughs> Tom Waits. <laughs> At one concert in Java in the 70s, 
Men screamed, women fainted, and a small boy broke his arm in the chaos, and it rained thousands of black worms the size of honeybees. He wrote his share of the songs from Sticky Fingers in a hen house in Malta. He once won the Hope Diamond in a poker game, and in the same night lost it in a game of craps. He owns a lug wrench and a tire jack made of solid gold. He was born in a cloakroom and has always been prone to fits of weeping, followed by hysterical laughter. One of his first jobs was cleaning out the lion cage at the London Zoo. Like the praying mantis, he has only one ear, and it is located between his legs. <laughs> he can hold a note up to six minutes and has seven or eight notes more than the ordinary voice, and they are equally sonorous and clear. And then Tom Waits says, Hands like a woodworker, arms like a swabby, a back like a soldier, a mind like a detective, shoulders like a boxer, a voice like a choir boy, and a country western face. His tunings are furiously guarded secrets. He claims one open tuning he utilizes was inspired while waiting for a train in Detroit. In a vacant lot, the remains of a barbed wire fence were half circling the remains of an old foundry. And there, amidst tin cans, old mattresses, and dolls' heads, it occurred to Keith that a guitar is at its most rudimentary level, wire that has been stretched across wood that when strummed produces a pleasant relationship between disparate components. Noticing the wire fence in effect contained these same ingredients, Keith took the lid of a discarded paint can and strummed the tightly stretched fence wires violently, rhythmically, and repeatedly. Disparate components, noticing the wire fence in effect contained these same ingredients. Keith took the lid of a discarded paint can and strummed it, strummed the tightly stretched fence wires violently, rhythmically, and repeatedly. I read, read that twice because I'm not smart. Thus satisfying his curiosity and releasing the peculiar voicings of the chord we now all know to be the chord at the beginning of Jumping Jack Flash, transcribing the notes and adapting them for guitar. Keith, Keith lost none of the angular chords mystifying a natural jaggedness, and thus the fence chord was born. Keith once took my $10,000 overcoat to put down across a mud puddle to allow an octogenarian a laundress named Clementine Morehouse to cross the street comfortably. That's Keith, always the gentleman. And um, Tom Waits, you know, would have read that infinitely better. But, you know, I think what he captured there was a, a, a real guitar hero, not just as a guitar player, but someone we all really... We, I, I don't know about people who are young now, but... Uh, we just cherish him because he was that sound. He was the heart of the sound that was inherited from Chuck Berry. And he took that. And if you want to see something really great, check out the, um, the movie about Chuck Berry that Keith did. Uh, you'll find it. There's not that many movies about Chuck Berry. And when they have a fight in the middle of the film, oh, yeah. Chuck is a very yeah. an extremely... Um, aggravated human being who does not get along with everyone and even with Keith Richards who loves him and was playing backup for him he had a fight so as Keith Richards would say this is how I'd say it well just uh, yeah, just uh, just look at Rolling Stone uh, there's a poem in there Tom Waits and uh, it's a bunch of fucking lies but I like it I like it <laughs> 
Oh God, that's great. That's a great impersonation. Oh my God. I only do uh, three impersonations. Well that one's really good. Oh my god. Yeah, I can do it all I can do it like automatically. Hey Rog, you doing man? Where's I lost me marbles? This is somewhere Keith Richards. I, I, you go and do your impersonation. Anybody you want, you want to do it. We've, uh, I'm just going to take a nap now. <laughs> Keith Richards, the heart of rock and roll. That's all I got to say. Um, wow. That, I love that poem. Hopefully, uh, you, you could, as David said, check out Rolling Stone. You'll find it. But it's uh, fantastic. Um Okay, moving forward, uh, I'm going to p- now. I'm going to play a song, Dave. Oh. We haven't played a song in a while. I keep wanting to play a song, and this song is going to relate perfectly with uh, what we're going to talk about coming up. Okay, so here I go. I'm, here's the song. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. Anger. He smiles, towering in shiny metallic purple armor. Green jealousy in the waits behind him. Her fiery green gown stares at the grassy ground. Through all the life-giving waters taken for granted, they quietly understand. Once happy turquoise armies lay opposite ready, but wonder why the fight is on. But they're all I cut it off, Dave, into oh, the instrumental because I, I got the point across. Yeah. Axis Bold as Love, Jimi Hendrix, everybody. Uh, one of the great albums you can go off to a desert island with. That would be one of the ten you would take. Um, and it, it's, it's, 
our thing coming up now is going to be around anger. And, uh, and this was very much part of what this song was about, all the different, um, shall we say, disconcerting emotions that we all have to deal with. I love his line, my, my yellow in this case is not so mellow. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, anger. Okay, we're going to talk about anger. I yeah. got extremely angry this past week, Dave. Uh-huh. Yeah, because an old, old friend from my India days created, uh, whose name shall be nameless, uh, created a situation with another friend that would be, uh, my father used to call people like this shit disturbers, okay? He brought something up, which, first of all, was uh, he had all his facts completely wrong, didn't have any idea of what the details of the history of the situation was, and he egged this person on to become um, completely berserk and uh, uptight. Uh, That's not a good word. Uh, Strike those two things. He egged this person on to become um, himself very angry, feeling as if uh, uh, I had uh, misled them. And, of course, then I reacted, feeling angry that I would even be accused of misleading. So it was a whole complex situation. And um, and I ended up uh, feeling really... Uh, f- I, it's been a while since I've been this angry at somebody um, for causing this uh, this issue. So it started, you know, acting for me as uh, as uh, something to really think about and think about the ways in which uh, all of us get into this kind of situation very, very easily. And how do we deal with it? And what do we do about it? And I came across some stuff, Dave, that I wanted to share because I've been sharing it with myself. And it basically, uh, it, it came from uh, an article that I had found uh, from our Zen teacher friend, Norman Fisher, who we have quoted from in the past uh, on all sorts of things. And, and he's applying five uh, mind training slogans to, to anger and other strong emotions. Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of things in here that I thought would would really help. It was helping me, and uh, I thought it would help everybody else. And you, I mean, I think uh, you can relate to the situation and perhaps uh, identify it in your own life. Um, but th- the first thing here is about nobody having the capacity to figure anybody out. Like, you know, uh, we, and, but we do, right? In other words, I'm, I'm, projecting what's in my friend's head about why he created this situation when I do not have uh, all of the facts and all of the emotions that are going on in him. And uh, the potential for mischaracterization is enormous. So we react. Oh, the train whistle. That is so great. Very plaintive. Fits in. Wow, I love that. 
Um, and we do this with people we're angry at. We know exactly who this person is, why or he, he is or she is unworthy of our regard and richly worthy of our anger. Why we should give this terrible person, why should we give them the benefit of the doubt? Never. Yet the truth is we have no idea what's going on inside this person. We have no idea what really makes him and her tick. We are angry at a phantom, a figment of our own imagination. Stop trying to figure other people out. So this, this is a good antidote here because the truth is, in my own case, and I don't know, you could talk about yours, um, he may have had all of the exact uh, correct motivations, good motivations, heartfelt motivations, feeling inequity, uh, that uh, he wanted this other person to not have this in it. I mean, he could have had, and probably did, have all sorts of things. I went right to a characterization in my mind of someone who is nothing but a shit disturber and is not worth um, contemplating anything else whatsoever. I mean, I think this is a great uh, uh, way to immediately look at something when you're angry at somebody else. I mean, is this not something... Have you... Uh, this is a pretty good... Uh, Antidote, no? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, Raga and I talked about this during the week. I mean, there's two ways. It, it's kind of bifurcated for me because, yes, you're obviously, you know, one has to be empathetic, sympathetic to the person that's angry just to see why, you know, and not to condemn the person and make a as-them paradigm immediately. However, in this case, uh, he definitely did something which you know, one would prefer people to have restraint in causing trouble between two other people, all of whom know each other. Uh, okay, his facts were wrong. And therefore, he'd never actually bothered to really find out the truth about the situation and, and, and spouted it out. So um, to say that, yeah, I, I sympathize with him and I'm not going to get angry with him because he's got his own way of looking. Nah, that doesn't work for me. Um, he's a shithead. Shouldn't have done it. Now, I'm saying he's a shithead. Does that mean I'm angry with him? I guess. Then, after having said that, one as a human being rather than a saint, I then have to go to my teachers, my teachings, great teachers, Sharon and Pema Chodron and Jack and Ram Dass. And, and just, what would they think? think about this and they would say well you know chill man chill um you know uh he did it he as ragu said before he thought he was right and he had a a righteous sense about it my problem with it was that the shitheadiness part of it is that he didn't do his homework and therefore created a shitstorm i'm sorry to keep using this word without having actually done the reporting which is sort of like american journalism on the whole yeah. you know and so you know, I think your anger was justified, which takes us into it. But the, the question is, it, it doesn't help you or it doesn't help you to be angry. That's really, I, th I think, part of it. And rage and stuff is never good, is it? So the question is, you establish, okay, he did a shithead thing. Now I've got to think about why he did it and not perhaps try and be sufficiently compassionate that I will not revenge on him and will not allow it to perpetuate in my consciousness mm. too long. It's about the best I can hope for. I guess the thing that I uh, r this this brought up for me this particular don't you know don't try to figure other people out. Um, 
is the fact that I do know that many a time I am projecting onto the person that I'm angry at so much stuff. It, it could be stuff that I'm not happy about with myself, and it could be just other fantasies about this person I'm projecting to make it even more dramatic and give me more cause to be angry at that person. That's what I took away from this, that both the projection and also the fact, again, that I easily can be um, angry at myself, perhaps. I might have done something like this. I might have manipulated something in my past. And so I think, you know, sometimes we can look at that and look at ourselves in that way. You're absolutely right. But in this particular case, I think you're too hard on yourself. In other words, you often say that you have an anger component. And um, I know what you're talking about, but I think you're one of the more empathetic people I've ever met in my life. And and maybe your anger is not about something you would have done, but is just about, you know, uh, saying, how could this person do this? In yeah. other words, I'm throwing it out as a, as a, a dialectic here. Uh, and it's going to lead to our next anger uh, article, which is very interesting also, which is, is it bad to be angry? Always. Is it always bad to be angry? Um, in other words, the people right now, I mean, I must say that when I look at Facebook, the ones that are really angry, even if they're angry about the same thing that I'm angry about, I'm, I'm turned off always, always, you know, they say, well, you know, Trump is an asshole. Trump is a pig. Trump is an idiot. Trump is a liar. Trump is a, a force of evil. Maybe those things are true, but do I really want to see that? Do I continually want to be immersed in the, in the, in the murky, you know, water of of anger and drown what eventually is going to happen to a permanently angry person they're going to get sick yeah so but i just want to say to the people out there that um i think rog has been very um very honest about this about trying to uh, you know to transcend this anger but i think there are some cases when anger is appropriate as long as it doesn't turn into revenge rage and can then be calibrated to act uh, either in talking with that person or, or at least trying to see what, what's going on. Why did he do this? And that's good. Uh, something I find very hard to do also. Another way when we're angry, we typically blame, right? Blame our old, we've talked about blame before and lash out. Most of us, how about this? Most of us are not courageous enough to lash out at the people we're actually angry at. So instead, we lash out at someone else who's safer and nearer to us, right? We Or we take pot shots, we gossip, or just grouse and feel indignant in the privacy of our own minds. These activities probably don't hurt the target of our anger at all. They do hurt us and uh, other people plenty. So that how often does that happen when you're... You know, you get angry at something and, and you, you come home from work and, you know, your kids are around, your wife is around, your husband is around, your mother is around, your father. And and that's who you lash out at. How often does that happen? Right. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. So that's that is absolutely something to take a look at. You know, blaming and lashing out out of that emotion uh, for sure, for sure. Um 
The truth is anger is very hard to overcome, and the job of seeing through it takes a lot longer than you think, even when you believe you are finally finished with anger. Oh boy, do I know that. Subsequent events will prove that you're not. Hope that it's going to that it's gone or going to get over with soon can breed laziness and even impatience. Yet patience, which requires an act of courage, is what you need the most. So internally, you really do need to have the commitment to go on working with your anger. That is highly, uh, highly important. And, and that brings in, of course, mindfulness. That brings in, of course, patience. That brings in uh, a commitment to wanting to be just a better human being. So think that that's uh, important. Um, and here's something else. Don't poison yourself. Poison, in this case, means self-centeredness, right? Self-cherishing, self-centeredness. Each of us does have to be responsible for ourselves and not expect others to take care of us. But at the same time, it's clear that excessive self-concern is counterproductive, at least to paranoia, greed, and negative personal and social consequence. The antidote to this poison is a wise concern for others that will balance self-concern. Um, wise concern for others absolutely balances so much of our lives and gives, uh, to me, real meaning when we can start s thinking about other people and not just ourselves. So that's, uh, I think, a, you know, a really... Um, uh, important, important uh, point as well. Uh, when we become defensive and aggressive, it's usually because of the poison of self-concern. So that's uh, that's another one. Uh, and last in our little uh, anecdotes for anger, let's say when we get angry, we climb up, we observe ourselves doing this, and we investigate. Is this just an old habit that we have in fact outgrown? Where does it come from? Do we like it or dislike it? Right there and then. I, I mean, I think we've talked, Dave and I, about this before. And I have said, I notice when I get angry and I'm going off about something, how, uh, first of all, a lot of other things that I'm unhappy with come into that moment. And then there's a power. Anger has a power. And people get attached to that power. It actually feels good. And you, so again, mindfulness and awareness, you can actually uh, discern the taste of what that anger is to you. And uh, liking it, disliking it, do we find comfort in it? How, do we, how does it feel in the body? Uh, is something else possible in this moment? Could we be a little more creative? a little less lazy in the way we respond, right? I mean, because you get into this, you kind of feel like, oh, it feels good, you know, that power. And then the next thing you know, um, uh, you're not even thinking about being able to cut it off. You're enjoying it. I mean, it's really kind of sick, actually. <laughs> That's what I find. In, uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. Um, insofar as anger always presents us forcefully with the possibility that we could challenge our usual way of doing business. That's the key. We can challenge our usual way of doing business. It can be a very helpful reminder of who we are now and who we might become. Anger is an acupressure point in the heart. Norman Fisher. Love that. 
that's just fantastic. It might be, it might feel sore and raw when it's bumped, but that's good. If we know how to be patient with the pain, how to gently and skillfully massage it, it can be healed by anger itself. How about that for a segue into what's wrong with being angry? Dave, yes. you take it. Oh, okay, well, uh, Raghu sent some, or suggested I read an article by Mark Epstein, who's a therapist and a Buddhist. And, um, you know, he is writing about, well, you get angry, and he, he writes about these these anecdotes about, you know, cooking something with his wife, some salad or something, and his wife wasn't doing it the way he wanted to do it, and they're very much in love, and they're a great couple, and within a very short time, the thing escalated into, into anger, rage, recrimination, and so forth. And he tells another anecdote about a couple he knows who also love each other, who are in Paris, and had an argument about nothing on the streets of Paris. The guy threw all his money on the ground in rage, ran away, and then went back to New York, <laughs> left his wife in Paris, who then, you know, stayed there for a few days and felt terrible. But what Mark Epstein is saying, which I think is really important, and I do think this, is that you can't force yourself to do something which is actually inhuman. In other words, you, so you have an argument, and he's saying, well, you have an argument, but that doesn't necessarily mean you hate the person. And within a very short time, you can actually teach yourself and discipline yourself to, to know that the argument's okay and even the anger's okay as long as you can come around the corner with it and say, I was angry, but I love you, baby. I love you. And I'm just going to, you know, and we've all, those of us that have been married, I've all had these experiences, and we've also all had the, the wonderful experience of, of, of non-attachment to it, whereby either you or your spouse or a partner, you know, says, oh, honey, you're so angry, don't get angry. I mean, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. Or, or just, we, we agree to disagree, which is sort of almost like a television talk show, a political talk show thing to say. So it's not <laughs> the kind of, oh, darling, we agree to disagree. It never comes out like that. Eventually what happens is, I'm sorry. And, but the thing is, is repression of that anger at an event always got to be 100%. And what Epstein, Dr. Epstein says, and I think rather wisely, is no, uh, you can get angry and then you don't, um, you don't recriminate yourself or the other person for very long and you don't try and attune the other person to your point of view or vice versa because, and he talks about uh, parenting, about kids drive you crazy sometimes, and those of us who have had children know this is true. And for a moment, and this is not going to please everyone, I'm about to say, you hate your kid. You want to strangulate her or him. It's true. It comes up. It's there. Is it real? Well, is anything real? It is as real as anything else is. And what happens is you overcome that. But you don't say, I wasn't really angry. You don't say, Oh, she's perfect, and I'm just an asshole. It doesn't. That just doesn't help. And Epstein, uh, very, I mean, with great, you know, wisdom, says that there was a thing. Rago, he talks about it in here about parenting, called, you know, you can't be a perfect mother. D. D. W. Winnicott, who was a British um, analyst, said, you know, you've got to be a good enough mother or a good enough father. 
And he's not saying to compromise and don't be, you know, do the best you can be. He's just saying, you know, you can't be 100% with your kids because sometimes they drive you crazy and vice versa. They can't always be totally, oh, I love my mummy even though she's absolutely driving me crazy. So there's an honesty factor here. I don't know whether I've articulated this too well, but basically he's saying what's wrong with being angry and then transcending that and returning to the love, the reason you're in that room with that person, that family. Um, you know, the mysterious, mystical fact is that you are with these people and not with other people. So... Yeah. Uh, Given that, unless it becomes ridiculous and then there's divorce and whatever, but in most cases you can overcome it. But by not pretending that you're not angry and just looking at it almost from a distance, like, oh, look, I'm angry. Look at that. I'm angry. I really am angry with my little kid. But then letting it go, as, as all the mindfulness teachers say, is just, you know, let it fade yeah. away slowly into the distance hmm. and see your anger and maybe try to be a little more equanimous the next time. Yeah. This is a, actually what you just said is, is, and he ties it together, and you just talked about mindfulness here. Uh, there's a great way in which this ties together, and, and certainly he talks here about returning after disruption to an appreciation of the connection. Right. There, and, and to me, the key word is return. And this is something else we've talked about. And I like what he says uh, here. Um, it's considered a sign. Uh, we're talking about. So he's, ta he's comparing this to meditation. Uh, disruption, failure and disagreement are healthy and normal. Right. We are human. Learning to transition between connection and separateness without losing faith is a great challenge, that uh, for sure. In meditation, which has been essential, he's talking about how it's helped in accepting the entire range of his emotional responses, bringing the mind back to the central object, the breath, a prayer, or a visualization when I get distracted. It's considered a sign of maturity in meditation when the distractions are lo no longer viewed as problems but can instead, instead become objects of meditative interest in themselves, mm. right? And this is, this is, again, goes back to what Sharon Salzberg talks a lot about, is you, as soon as you remember that your mind, you know, you've been thinking about all sorts of stuff for five minutes and have lost your focus on your the central focus, uh, one point of one pointedness, you return to that place. And that's why practice is so important. This is a key thing here because we're talking, you know, he's talking, of course, about relationships and, and, and getting angry and, and fighting and so on. And if you realize we are human, these disruptions happen, you return to what's kept you, what's how you connected or you return when you lose focus to the one point that you have been focusing on, the more that you practice that, I would have to say that you'll have a much better chance of being able to uh, go through these disruptions uh, in, in, a, in a way more facile uh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, method. I, I, there's, no, you know, there's no argument with that. You know, it's just, I mean, I've... 
I definitely improved a little bit than when I was a younger human about politics and anger. Mm. You know, because I used to just get irate beyond words at, at right-wing cold-heartedness and so forth. And um, over the years, uh, I've learned to be angry at what they're espousing, but not to ad hominem or ad womanem, uh, you know, hate them. Because it's not a question of whether they deserve your hatred. It's really a question of your own, of your own you know, balance, that you're going to lose your balance if you continue to be angry. I still think that I'm angry about politics. And uh, I recently had an experience with someone I really like. Uh, I've liked him for 20 years. I admire him, respect him, love him to death. And it has emerged over the last couple of years that he's an extreme right-winger. He sort of kept it hidden from me for a long time. Oh, really? And um, we talked about it last week. We actually talked about this together, um, about how we, we don't get angry with each other, even though we have opposing views. I know who it is. Yeah. I bet. Um, you know, and, and he, he said to me uh, when he was dropping me off, he picked me up in his car and he, he said, you know, I love you because we can talk about this stuff and you accept that you may not be right about all of it. And that's not supposed to be a self um, you know, praising thing to say. He said it to me, and I feel the same way about him. In other words, when he said to me that Obama was the worst president in the history of the United States, which he said to me, yeah. I said, mm, mm, and I, I immediately shot back with, oh, worse than George W.? I mean, invaded a country when he didn't have to, killed hundreds of thousands of people, dislodged uh, everything, and has made it hell for us, and ISIL has, has emerged out of this, the worst, you know, maniacs since Hitler. How could you not <laughs> recognize that? And he said, well, he believed in what he did and the intelligence was bad, which is what everybody says. And I laughed at him, but not in hatred, but just, oh my God, man, we really do disagree about this, like seriously heavily. And, you know, if you, if you, there's a movie out right now um, about the debate between William Buckley and, and Gore Vidal. Mm. It's in the cinemas, and I'm in the movie, and um, really? because I yes, and because I I did one of the only interviews with William Buckley that was that was when he first was on television, and um, Bill Buckley and I got on famously, despite the fact that he wasn't just a right winger but was the main force that uh, persuaded uh, Ronald Reagan to run for the president, and he was the main man behind Ronald Reagan, in fact. And our arguments were about Ronald Reagan. However, uh, you'll see it in the film. But what, I, what I'm just going to say right now was that that day, I, I came in and did the show. I was in London. I flew in for the show. I had the flu. I was very sick, coughing and spluttering and feeling a massive migraine headache. It just felt awful. And when in the, in the hour before the show, which was live, at WGBH in Boston, uh, Buckley arrived, sat in the green room with me, looked at me and said, you're ill. I said, yes, Mr. Buckley, I am. He said, you're really ill. You don't have to do this, you know. I said, no, you just flew in for this. He said, no, you don't have to do it. And then he proceeded to show nothing but the most wonderful compassion. And after the show, he put his arm around, he's much taller than me, and, and he put his arm around me and he said, you know, I'm really sorry that we had to do this because I, as much as I enjoyed doing it, you, you were sick and we shouldn't have done it really. And then I had a correspondence with Buckley and found out that he was one of the kindest men I've ever met. And truly kind. A lovely, lovely man. 
who showed enormous respect for me despite the fact that I knew almost nothing and was so sweet to me and and we corresponded later and he even wrote about me in a, in, in his column in the New York Times um, as being someone who I totally disagreed with but I really liked. He said it, not me. And he could have said anything. And I learned something on that day in July of 1968 which was that despite the fact that William F. Buckley Jr. was the exact diametrical opposite his views of everything I believed in, that when I actually met him, I liked him enormously. He showed kindness and compassion. He was not self-cherishing. He was interested in my welfare. Hmm. And that's all those years ago, you know. And uh, that was just life that taught me not. Not a guru, not a Rinpoche, hmm. but a right-wing uh, you know, uh, politi political analyst. Mm. So, you know, it's a long-winded way of putting it, but I did. you do learn from life, you know, and um, I've met many progressive liberals th whose opinions I completely agree with, who I never want to be in the same room again with in this life. <laughs> so we got to be careful hey, about these angers. Yeah. You know, people are very angry with Donald Trump right now, uh, and I understand that. And on, on Facebook, as some, most of you will have noticed, uh, people are just... You know, I think fear is a yeah. more operative word there as we start to realize, oh, my God, he could actually be the president. He you and I, are you're going back to London and I'm going back to Montreal. When yes, that happens. yes, we are leaving. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> on that one. Um, but I said that about Reagan, too, in 1980. No, was, come on. I'm gone, you know. Oh, no, but, this is uh, way beyond that. I mean, <laughs> it is way beyond that, yeah, because obviously Trump has, has got a lot of anger, to say the least, and is exploiting people's fear and anger in order to get these, to get appreciation. But thank goodness it's early, and we have over a year before the election, yes. and over five months before right. notable primaries, and probably he'll be... Um, faded out but we said that at the beginning so maybe we're wrong but uh you know um what mark epstein says in this is about life our real lives with our wives and children not with some distant political figure that we see on a screen right. in our house start and, there um, we can yeah, start, start there. right there yeah because yeah. i mean people rather people say to me all the time well god damn it if you're not angry about the fact that scott walker scott walker destroyed the unions in wisconsin are you angry about that and i said yeah i am angry about that it's disgusting the eradication of workers' rights, uh, but I have learned not to, uh, you know, not to hate him and want to kill him. Well, here's the uh, what we, of course, uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba told us in India, after he excoriated somebody for screwing up uh, in, in the kitchen or doing something really off the wall, like selling, you know, selling the the food uh, to make money uh, nobody knew about, and whatever he was doing was just off the wall. And he said, he screamed at him and threw him out. <laughs> and we were like, you said not to be angry. And he said, you can be angry, just never throw anyone out of your heart. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's the key to all of this. I want to turn quickly uh, to uh, this. This is, a, I guess you would, you would have to turn this another practical way that, uh, I like to, and I know we like to, Dave, uh, offer everybody out, our little community out there, um, just a way to deal with all of what we're talking about. And it brings up a comp an, an expression that was really, I'm pretty sure, I can't say it was coined by uh, Trogium Trungpa Rinpoche, but certainly comes from his tradition. And he did uh, mention it a lot. And uh, 
and here uh, his uh, one of his disciples that's most well known is Pema Chodron, and um, this is what she says. Let's uh, so I can explain, or she can explain what the gap is, and it relates to meditation, and then it relates to life. The space. So, in terms of uh, meditation, um, the space between outbreaths is sometimes called the gap. It points towards some gap in the internal chatter, some experience of spaciousness. It may take quite a long time for the beginning meditator to have an experience of that gap or space, and that's okay. That's why the other part of our meditation instruction is to label any thoughts we have as thinking and just let go of them and come back to the outbreath. That instruction encourages us to interrupt the constant barrage of talking to ourselves. And even if we do that only once, there is already some kind of gap which underlies remembering to come back to the sense of outbreath going out. We may not be aware of it as gap, quote-unquote, but it is already there as the basis of the process of remembering to label thoughts, thinking, and come home, way back home, to the present moment. So that concept of gap uh, is, and, and Dave and I talk about practice and basic mindfulness practice, I think that this is such an extraordinarily important um, point to uh, cultivate. And uh, in Trungpa's, um, his own words, um, when a gap or space occurs in our experience of mind, when there is a sudden glimpse of awareness, openness, absence of self, here's what happens. A suspicion arises. Suppose I find that there is no solid me. That possibility scares me. I don't want to get into that. That abstract paranoia, this discomfort that something may be wrong, is the source of karmic chain reactions. It is the fear of ultimate confusion and despair. The fear of the absence of the self, of the egoless state, is a constant threat to us. This is like the key to everything yep. to me, right? Yes. Suppose it's true. What then? I'm afraid to look. We don't want to look at ourselves. We want to maintain some solidity. But the only material available with which to work is space, the absence of ego. So we try to solidify or freeze that experience of space. Ignorance, in this case, is not stupidity, but it's a kind of stubbornness. Suddenly we are bewildered by the discovery of selflessness and do not want to accept it. We want to hold on to something. I mean, and that, and that gap, everybody has had that experience one way or the other. It doesn't even have to be in a meditation process. It can be sitting out looking at a lake. I was just at a river today with my dogs walking them, and a bunch of geese were just, I don't know, they all at least a dozen of them were not more than 30 feet out from the rocks just from... And they were just hanging there. And we just had this ineffable moment of just hanging, all of us, in that one moment. And, and I want to bring in something uh, really interesting. Um, when, when Trungpa talks about 
how you have that moment, you have that gap, and you immediately get into this fear state because, oh my God, if I'm not something solid, holy shit, I'm going to disappear. I'm dead, right? And I, I was working on a lecture, a talk of Ramdas's that I'm actually going to be doing a podcast after this. Um, and he, he talked about having that gap. And in his case, he was talking about a mystical experience. To me, it's the same. Whatever that moment of complete spaciousness through a mystical experience, through whatever, it upsets the apple cart. It upsets the security that we have of separateness. We push away what he calls our heritage of that spaciousness. We get attached to our desire systems, our separateness. We get afraid of losing our separateness. And out of that comes greed, lust, anxiety. Exactly what Trungpa said here. It's the source of karmic chain reactions that that uh, finding no solid me right and reacting you know, to the, yeah sorry no go I, ahead. it's funny because yesterday you know right now is the 10th anniversary of the katrina uh catastrophe really that happened in new orleans yeah and there's been a lot of stuff on television about it which some of which has been devastating and interesting but um yesterday uh president ex former president bush went to New Orleans, which everybody thought, what, come on, you know, because he was so heavily criticized. And he went there, and um, the video I saw of him was in a school with uh, mainly African-American children. And he was sitting with them, and he was clearly incredibly happy to be with them, and they were happy to be with him. He was chatting with them and really clearly rather a sweet moment you know and i'm looking at it and i just could not hate him and it felt good it felt really good because mm. maybe he did a lot of damage he certainly did but there's something there he's a human being just like me and all of you and um when i saw him with those school kids and he was so natural with them and so clearly so thrilled to be with them it, this was he's got no political axe to grind i mean come on you know, and so I felt some love to him and, and, and felt, okay, um, he's trying. And who am I to judge? God knows I don't know all the facts. I don't know whether he failed so badly. Or I don't know who failed so badly with Katrina. It's so easy to blame. But I'm glad that I was able to look at that image and just not feel, you know, I can just imagine on Facebook what's going on about that image. Oh, yeah, he's just trying to you know, make up for a nightmarish, blah, 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 blah. And that may well be true, but uh, I didn't feel that. And I'm glad I didn't feel it. And we all know the old story about about um, Ramdas putting President Bush on his puja table, along with the great saints of the last uh, 2,000 years, and um, explaining that, you know, he did not hate Mr. Bush, but felt great pity for the... Or, Compassion for a, a, a difficult and maybe even lousy incarnation. That's transcendent thinking. That's what, why we love these men and women is because they teach us to, to go there. You know, I mean, we talked to Gaelic Rinpoche a couple of weeks ago, Rago and I on the podcast. And can you imagine how horrible it was to be evicted by the Chinese and murdered and nuns being killed and monasteries being blown up and they had to run over the Himalaya, Himalayas to India and it was a nightmare? 
Telek had no anger about it, really. None. He just felt sad for those that had oppressed him. And these are, this is why we go there. This is why we go to that Tibetan place. Well, this you know? is why we highly recommend a daily practice which can enlarge in those gaps. It's not the right word, enlarge in, but as, uh, and this is another article from Tsokni Rinpoche, another great uh, teacher that we have with us these days and spends a lot of time in America. Uh, as these gaps grow longer and a little less startling, we can begin to rest within them. For a brief second or so, we can have a direct experience of what in the Buddhist tradition is known as essence of mind or nature of mind, a luminous, limitless awareness that is not chopped up into subject and object, self and other, perceiver and perceived. All, all distinctions between the looker and what was being looked at fall away. And for an instant, we experience complete lack of separation between everything we feel, see, smell, and so on, and the awareness that sees, smells, and feels. Our hearts and minds are completely open, and the spark that is our Buddha nature, or soul, or whatever you anybody wants to call that, leaps up into a brilliant flame. And that's what we aspire to here on Mind Rolling, Dave. That's our aspiration. And, and yep. uh, we may have started out with my own not doing quite well with the anger I had last week, but uh, here we are ended up into, uh, I think, some pretty good words from our teachers about what it is we can do in our, uh, in our lives day to day to actualize our aspirations. And the gap, developing the gap, is certainly a, a major one. We're way over our time here, by the yeah, way. Yeah, we are. Yeah, our sponsors are going to get all over us. Um, <laughs> and we're developing that, folks, getting some sponsors. That's what, The more sponsors we get, uh, we won't harangue uh, as much about our Amazon thing. But although we would probably still go on, Dave, and, and, and make the, uh, these recommendations of really cool things you can get, right, that we yeah. find. So uh, it's not all self-serving self-interest here. Um uh, we appreciate you folks. Write to us. Tell us what you're interested in. You can, uh, by the way, you may be missing. Go to mindpodnetwork.com, and you can find us mind-rolling there. You can also find all of our other friends, Ram Das, Krishna Das, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Lama Surya Das, Danny Goldberg, Chris Grasso. Everybody's there. And uh, there's comment sections below the podcast, so uh, feel free to, um, to give us your feedback. We love it. Dave? Yep. Au revoir, as they say. Au revoir. De bonne chance. And bonne chance.